all of the service is a form of worship. Whether we're praying, singing to the Lord, another form of worship is to hear God's voice and to put it into practice. So we now have the opportunity with the reading of Scripture for the readings appointed for this day. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah will talk about God's continued favor for the people of Zion. And in the, the book of Acts will remind us that God also invites the Gentiles to his family. And then in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, we'll hear of the first encounter with the risen Jesus. So let's open our ears and our hearts to hear what God has to say to his people. Uh, the first reading is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 1 to 6. Jeremiah, uh, chapter 31, verses 1 to 6. If you're still looking for Jeremiah, it's after Isaiah. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. Again, you will take up your timbrels and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. That's a good word. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him, after he rose from the dead, he commanded us to preach to the people 
and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us rise and stand before the Lord for the reading of the gospel. The last chapter of Matthew in Hebrew, his name means God's gift. A Jewish writer, he writes to a Jewish audience about the Jewish Messiah. Everything he addresses from the genealogy to the baptism, to the parables, to the miracles, to the crucifixion points for a Jewish audience about their Jewish Messiah. Now he comes to the end of the story. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1. And after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalena and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook with fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Yeshua, who was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into the Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Yeshua met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Yeshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to the Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Lord, we, um, I ask that the words that come from my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight and bring edification to your people this evening. And we ask this, I ask this for the sake of Jesus, the risen Lord and Savior. Amen. I'd like to um, look at the passage briefly. This is the passage that we read in Matthew 28. And um, you know, there's always a challenge for preachers 
especially on a day like today? Do you preach the event or the holiday, or do you preach the passage? And uh, both have their merits, both have their drawbacks. But let's look at Matthew's resurrection story. His story, of course, has many things in common with the other three Gospels. There is a very high degree of uh, agreement, uh, but there are some things that are distinctive. And uh, I'd like to point out some of those things that are distinctive and uh, what they mean to us. So I'd like to start at verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, so Matthew's his uh, understanding of the resurrection is uh, a little bit different from the other Gospels because now he places the resurrection just after the Sabbath, which is when the sun goes down. The Sabbath ends at sundown. And so the Greek tells us that uh, this event is what we call in Hebrew Motzei Shabbat, the going down of the Sabbath. Yes, the going down of the Sabbath. And uh, this is where, this is how the resur- this is where Matthew puts the resurrection event. Always reminds me of uh, St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine is sometimes unfairly accused of uh, only being anti-Semitic. But uh, at the same time, he had a great deal of uh, sympathy and understanding for the Jewish people and even for Jewish believers. And when he was asked once, why didn't Jesus rise from the dead on, this, on a Saturday? He said, uh, of course, Jesus couldn't violate the Sabbath. So he had to wait till after, um, after the Sabbath. But what this says to me, or is very simply, very simply this, that the gospel, yes, what we call the gospel, which by the way is not about getting saved, yes, can I, di- can I read to you, yes, in several places, what the gospel is, all right, because I want to set the gospel in its right context. According to Romans chapter 1, it says that uh, Paul, who's called to be an apostle, and he set apart for the gospel of God, yes, for this good news uh, that God is bringing to the world. Um, the gospel he promised beforehand through his, promise, through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who the spirit and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The gospel of God is first of all, not just about getting saved. And it's not only about Jesus rising from being crucified and rising from the dead. So we can go to heaven. The gospel of God, the gospel of God, yes, which finds its climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is, in its context, the story of Israel. It's the story of the Jewish people. It can never be separated from that story. Although in most of our teaching and preaching, and even in our evangelism, 
and sometimes I can understand why, right? That whole story of Israel is totally removed. So we generally start with Genesis 1, beautiful. Genesis 2, beautiful. Genesis 3, not so beautiful. And then we skip over to Matthew. And what happens to two-thirds of the Bible? What happens to God's guidance, direction, his instruction, what he's communicating to his people? Now, I'm saying all this is not political. I'm saying all this because I don't want people to become Jewish wannabes. But this is the basic um, context, which we can't deny. Yes, God's redemption comes to us in and through the Jewish people, right? And their story that we find in the Hebrew Bible or what we call the Old Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which is something that, a phrase that you should be very familiar with. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, the following. He says, now brothers, I want, you to, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Now the gospel that Paul preached to the church at Corinth wasn't you walk down the aisle and you receive Jesus into your heart. Now that may be a part of it, but that's not the message that Paul preached. He preached, he says, um, he said, the priest to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Yes, now, now Paul's connecting. He's, he is telling the church in Corinth, now you've been, you have made uh, an act of, you have made an act of allegiance or you have made a commitment to this. So this message is going to require some kind of response or some kind of commitment or some kind of allegiance. And he says, by this gospel you were saved if you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Titus, Timothy, Colossians, scriptures of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament is nothing more than the story of Israel. And it's in and through that story that God brings redemption to the world. That's the context, first and foremost context of the resurrection. And if we don't fully understand that, we'll miss a lot. If we don't understand any of it, but yet trust in it, there's no doubt that we have a glorious future with God in heaven. But there's so much more. Yes, uh, there's so many uh, more riches, you know, that uh, we can... uh, firmly build our lives on if we understand uh, this, particular, this particular context. And I'd like to go one step further because the story in and of itself, 
right? Or a story in and of itself is actually what human beings live by. We get our identity, we get our stories, sorry, we get our, sorry, we get our identity, we get our theology, we get, uh, you might say, our joy. Where does it come from? It doesn't come from um, abstract philosophy or it doesn't come first and foremost from what, from uh, verses that we read in the Bible, as shocking as this may seem to you. We get our, you might say, uh, we get our identity and we live by stories. That's the way human beings are made. Human, we're made to live by a story. We're made to love a story. Stories have more power and more impact than a creedal statement or a theology book uh, about love with 368 footnotes, half of them in German, okay? A, a story of a, of a father, a rejected father with two, yes, um, prodigal sons is a lot more powerful and motivates us, yes, much more, yes, than so-called quote-unquote theology. We love to talk about theology in our circles, but we should talk about stories. What stories are we telling ourselves and what stories are we telling each other? That's why the resurrection story is so important. And by the way, if you th think I'm making this up, it's all been, over the last few years, been confirmed, you might say, or established by neurologists. But if this isn't our story, if the gospel isn't the story that we tell ourselves, that we rehearse or we relive or we celebrate on a regular basis, then some other story that probably comes from the world or comes from a broken place within us, or comes from the devil, will take its place. And it will become, you might say, our central theme. The theme that, um, by which we run our lives, even if we go to church and hear it once a week. So the resurrection, uh, the power, yes, of Jesus, or Jesus breaking the power of death, Jesus breaking the stronghold of Satan, Jesus breaking, right, the, the fear of death and the power of sin, if that's not central to our lives, if that's not the story that we live by, if that's not the story that we love, then surely we will live by some other story. Even if we give um, verbal assent or, or some kind of, uh, yes, uh, we mouth some kind of loyalty to the gospel. And by the way, this life, death, and resurrection does require, yes, as I said, a response. It requires our allegiance. Why does Paul go through that long chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 talking about the resurrection and saying if we, the resurrection isn't true, then our faith is in vain. He says that to, the, the purpose of saying that to the Corinthians is not only to educate them, although he, he is, but he's telling them that they need to stand firm. 
to this. They need to, they need to be committed to this story. Okay, they need to be committed to uh, the gospel. And uh, he does that very nicely at the beginning. He, when I read, we read to you, um, I apologize. It says, um, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. And then he ends the chapter or ends the discussion by saying, therefore, dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. The next thing that struck me in this chapter, yes, um, was the effort that the powers of this world went, went uh, to in order to try to kill Jesus. Uh, and I think this is an important, I believe this is an important lesson for us and in the day and age in which we lived. Matthew's gospel starts off with King Herod. King Herod wants to kill Jesus. King Herod actually had a palace. We're pretty much today here at Christ Church sitting on the palace or standing uh, on the remains of King Herod's palace. This is where the Magi met Herod. And of course, Herod tried to trick them, etc., etc. Herod, um, of course, um, eventually tries, eventually kills babies in Bethlehem. The Magi go and find Jesus and joyfully, joyfully worship him. And sort of the things that happened to Jesus at the beginning of his life, they're very similar things happened to him at the end of his life. And at the end of his life, yes, we have the secular and the religious authorities, yes, who want to kill Jesus. Um, and they fail. They come to the limits of their power. Um, and we live in a day, for many of us, we ask, we're asking ourselves the question, what's happening to our countries? And what's happening to the world in which we live? Why is everything unraveling? Why is, uh, you know, why are we having this war or that inflation? And who's controlling, you know, this? Uh, who's responsible for this flood of pornography that's entering into our, entering into, you know, our society? And we look around for answers, but we do so in a very secular way. And so we, we latch on to conspiracy theories. There must be some, some evil group of people or companies or governments, whatever it may be, that are... This is the hidden hand that's controlling things. And we begin to sort of misapply or to misuse um, our time and energy and even uh, misdirect our prayer focus. And we're, we end up battling flesh and blood. 
We end up battling flesh and blood. Yeah, by the way, all this conspiracy, these conspiracy theories, in many ways are just the result of secularization. You know, a few hundred years ago, we all believed that either God was in control of the world or there was a spiritual, or there was spiritual warfare going on. Now, we've pretty much put that aside and we believe somehow it's all about human beings. I am sure there are people plotting evil things. And I'm sure people, organizations, or corporations, or governments, or elites, whatever you want to call them, you know, from time to time probably try to, uh, you know, control world events or stage world events. But even if that is so, ultimately, they will always fail. They will never succeed. They will never replace God, right? Just as they tried to kill Jesus, they failed. At the beginning of his life, maybe in the middle of his life, at the end of his life, yes, there is a limit to, to what we might call secular power or to the power of human beings. As I, this reminds me of the Messianic Psalm. Yes, Psalm 2, yes, which is very appropriate uh, at the, to remember on this day. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather, gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in their wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Yes, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession you will rule them with an iron scepter. Yes. Human secular powers have their limit and we don't need to fear them. We don't need to fear them. We can be cautious. We don't have to go along with them. We may have to declare our allegiance to Jesus to be one or higher than you know, one to our government or our community or our denomination at times. What else? Matthew has earthquakes in this story. Now Matthew's, Matthew's account of Jesus and his resurrection I have to disagree with my, my new friend, Reuven Daron, who said it was, Matthew had a dramatic account. It's kind of boring compared to the other three. You know, it's, it's kind of like, come on, Matthew, don't you have more to say than this? It's just 10 verses. Yeah, and John is so much more dramatic and emotional. And, but what happens around the death of Jesus in Matthew's gospel is really, really significant. Because you have, before the death of Jesus, 
and after the death of, uh, sorry, before the death of Jesus and after the resurrection, you have an earth, you have earthquakes. Yes, earthquakes here in Jerusalem. And I can't think of a better, uh, you might say, better image to um, remind us, right, you know, that the resurrection, yes, was, or maybe it's, we should say, the resurrection still is, yeah, an earthquake, yes. It is something dramatic, right? It is something unexpected. It is something that shook the earth and continues to shake the earth today. But we've domesticated it. We've turned it into Easter cards and the Easter parades and chocolate bunnies, yes? And in the church, well, I'm all for chocolate as long as it's 90%. 90%. And in the church, what do we do? We've also domesticated the earthquake. Maybe because we're afraid of it or afraid of its power. And so we preach it once a year or we take it out at funerals and dust off the idea of the resurrection and say to people, yes, you know, you have eternal life. That's, that's good life too. <laughs> you know, kid, come back. <clears throat> the fewer kids, the longer the sermon. <clears throat> No, we're, we're getting there. It's an earthquake, and we have domesticated it. Oh yes, when you, if you believe in Jesus, when you die, you can go to heaven. But it's not a daily reality that somehow shakes our lives and shakes the lives of the world around us. Because in that earthquake, well first before the earthquake, the curtain in the temple separating the holy place from the holy of holies is torn in two, meaning there's going to be a new order to things. As Jerome spoke about so powerfully this morning, that that, that system of, uh, of sacrifices and purity, yes, was a temporary fix awaiting a permanent solution. That was an earthquake. And that the ground broke open, yes, and graves, and the the dead came out of their graves, telling us that, you know, death has been defeated, right? You might say all of this, you know, was kind of an end of the, a mini end of the world, a mini eschaton. What happened in the the death and resurrection of Jesus Yes, uh, in a big way is going to happen to us in the future. And so there was a very famous, I think, theologian by the name of uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, and he challenged us, the church, in this way. He said, you know, the death of Jesus doesn't shake us and disturb us, 
right, doesn't, the death and resurrection doesn't kind of push us out of our complacency. He says, I don't know what will. So he said, let me put it like this. He said, if the resurrection is true, then nothing else matters. Yes? If the resurrection is true, if it was a real event, I think most of us believe that, then nothing else matters. He said, but if the resurrection is a lie, if the resurrection isn't true, then nothing else matters. That's how essential all of this is. Yes, that's how critical all of this is. But again, is it a part of our story? Is it something we live by? Is it something that moves us? Is it something that gives us joy? Does it give us an identity? Or do we take our identity from TikTok? Or do we take our identity, you know, from uh, the lies that sometimes our broken self tells us? It's an earthquake. And then, just going on a little bit more, here you have the, and the angel who says to the women who go to the tomb, who are the first witnesses of the resurrection, and isn't it amazing today in the church the way uh, women are sometimes oppressed pushed to the side, denied any role in leadership. Yes, they're the apostles to the apostles. Yes, so they go and they meet an angel. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen just as he said. And here's the invitation that given to these women, and the invitation is still, yes, ongoing for us. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. Come and see the place. That invitation is an ongoing one. It's okay, by the way. You know, no one's saying amen, so I know he's, he's appreciating. Any, any church that doesn't have a bunch of yelling kids is not really a church, so I need to pay you to stay. Come and see. Come and see. Let's, let's all go and look. But where are we going to look? Are we going to go to the garden tomb? Are we going to go to the church of the Holy Sepulcher? Are we going to get caught up in that kind of um, minor, unimportant argument? Or are we going to see, yeah, are we going to um, focus on what the risen Jesus, yes, not the dead Jesus, 
what the risen Jesus has done in the lives of people for 2,000 years. Not just my life, but the lives of hundreds, millions of people. Millions of people, yes, have met a risen Jesus. That risen Jesus has transformed their lives. That risen Jesus, right, has motivated them or changed them to the point that they're, that hundreds of thousands, perhaps also millions, have been willing to give up their lives for his sake, or have been willing to give up their time, or their money, or their finances, right? Or to endure suffering, or to go out and take risks, right? In order to go tell others that he is risen from the dead. That is the proof of the resurrection. Those are the people, by the way, that we should honor and appreciate and admire. It's not just about me and my experience. And though I've said this before, I think I need to say it again. Because if today we witness or we want to share our faith or to share our reality, many people will come back to us with, well, that's your truth, but I have mine. And what do you say to that? You say the following, this is not my truth. This is the truth of hundreds of millions of people over 2,000 years. This is our truth. It's our truth. We have millions of witnesses against your one so-called testimony or your one experience. Jesus has changed lives. And not only has he changed lives, the, those changed lives have changed the world. Yes. They have changed the world for the better. And yes, I know it's not perfect and there's still, but the followers of Jesus, motivated by his resurrection, yes, empowered by his resurrection, right, have built schools and hospitals and fought against slavery and oppression and worked for you know, civil rights, built up family, strive for peace in the world through the creation of what we call international law. Again, that's the, that is the resurrection. And finally, it is finally, the response isn't just to go and see. What do the women do? They fall down and worship. And in nine places, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus receives worship. Yes, Jesus receives worship. Now he always points to God and asks God to, he tells others that uh, the rich young ruler or his encounter with the devil, yes, you know, only God alone should be worshiped. But when people do prostrate themselves and people bow down, and the word in Greek is more than just to kneel in reverence. In many cases, it's undeniable that it's talking about worship. Yes. Our response is not only one of coming to see or going to see, but it also 
means kneeling at the foot of, feet of Jesus, right, and paying him the homage or the veneration that's due to him. And this is not idolatry. We're not worshiping a man. We're worshiping a God who took a human form. That's the difference. And in a city like Jerusalem, it's sometimes hard to make this point. Yes. This is not about Jesus becoming a God. This is about God becoming Jesus. All right. Let's make sure that... Uh, that yes. Finally, then this should be in the gospel, but it's not. Yes. The result of Jesus and his exaltation... Yes, we have the end of Matthew 28, which is, no, which is part of the resurrection story. And this is a passage we'll read um, right after Pentecost. But for now, I just want to make, make mention of it. Yes, yes, the vindication of Jesus, the glorification of Jesus is because of the resurrection. And that's why Jesus can say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Yes. First, the invitation was to come. And now the invitation is to go. But why are we going? I mean, this could be just some kind of imperialism. Yes, we're taking some religious, somebody's religious ideas and we're going to other countries or uh, other societies or, you know, other communities in our own nation, and we're telling them to be like Jesus. That's a chutzpah. You know, that's kind of, especially in the day and age in which we live, boy, that's the worst, you know, that's the, the worst kind of what, uh, yeah, imperialism. And especially since it's Christianity is was so identified with Europe. We can't say that it is anymore. Surely the center of Christianity today is not in uh, Europe, not in Geneva or Rome. It's in Uganda or Lagos or Singapore. But all authority, Jesus said, has been given to me. Therefore, go. And why is that? Because of the resurrection, right? The, resur the resurrection, which not only vindicates Jesus, it exalts him, yes, um, and gives him the right to say, go. And go and do what? Teach them everything, right, I have commanded. And let's end with this. Have you ever noticed that Jesus not just tells us to do a lot of things, but all, lives out his own teaching to the point where it cost him his life? Yes. You know, you might say that... Um, when Jesus says if you try to save your life, you will lose it. So Jesus purposely lays down his life and in the end saves it. 
Jesus becomes a servant, which in the end makes him great. And Jesus makes, puts himself last, right? Only to become first. He, not only, he models his teaching for us and invites us, yes, with the authority that he's given by the resurrection, yes, to respond differently. And the response is, right, first and foremost, for us to always recenter this story, yes, in, or this event in the story of Israel. Not so that we can wave an Israeli flag or dance the hora, but rather so that we can see God's faithfulness, long faithfulness and his patience in bringing redemption. And our response to all that is to stand firm, right? To maintain our allegiance. And secondly, Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the secular powers around us or the government or the turmoil or the disorder. These things get worse and sometimes they get better. Don't be afraid because God is still in charge of history. Even though human beings are working, on, on, working overtime in order to create mayhem. Yes, that in the midst of all this, God's purposes are still being accomplished. And let's have that long view and be encouraged by those who have gone before us and been faithful and motivated and empowered by, the, by a risen Jesus. That will include worship and will also include going. Yes. In your going, Jesus says, make disciples. And it doesn't matter if you're going across the street to help a neighbor or you're going to China. In your going, yes, the risen, exalted Jesus, the glorified Jesus, the vindicated Jesus, yes, because of that, because of the resurrection, tells us to go. So Father, we pray that as your community, Yes, we will be challenged by the resurrection. We pray that we will not so domesticate this or so ignore this that it really becomes unimportant to us. We ask instead that uh, you, your Holy Spirit yes, will motivate us yes, to live, to allow you to live your life in us so that we can experience that power of the resurrection. And Father, even if it means sharing in his sufferings, we pray that uh, as your followers, or the followers, disciples of Jesus, we will not be afraid. And that uh, the joy of a risen Jesus uh, will uh, indeed empower us and animate us and ultimately give us an identity as the people of the resurrection. And we do ask these things, Lord, because we are weak and uh, misguided and sometimes uh, even lazy. We pray that uh, you will come to your people 
and indeed strengthen us. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.